Bibles, the book of 1 Corinthians. Today we begin our new study in this book. And uh, it, it is, I told my wife this week, I can't believe I've gone this long in the ministry and never preached through First and Second Corinthians. But such is the case, and we're going to begin this study on the first Sunday of the year. And that's very unusual for me for that to happen. But uh, we're going to begin here. So First Corinthians chapter 1, and we're going to read verses 1 through 17. We will not get nearly that far this morning, but it will give us a good uh, grasp of the, uh, some of the issues at hand that prompted the writing of this book to the church that was in Corinth, Greece. I'll bring out the New King James Version. God's Word says, Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all who in every place call in the name of the Lord Jesus, or I'm sorry, Jesus Christ our Lord. I practice that a hundred times every time I said the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's back up. I'm going to say it again right. To the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all who in every place call in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus, that you were enriched in everything by Him in all utterance and all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end. You may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you, now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, lest anyone should say that I had baptized in my own name. Oh yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Besides, I do not know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ be made of no effect. We are going to begin a new study this morning, as I shared earlier in 1 Corinthians. I uh, wonder at myself of why it's taken me so long in my ministry to get to this very important book. I believe we did have it in a Sunday school class at some point. But in terms of preaching through it expositorily, verse by verse... Um, I have not done this, not just not here, but not ever. Uh, and that's probably a mistake. Well, I think it m- may well have been. But um, why? Because it has so much practical and theological underpinnings for how we do what we should be doing in the church, corporately, in the, in the assembly of believers, but also in our private lives. And um, it... it gives us perhaps the most detailed information on worship, how we ought to be doing what we're doing right now. 
What is, the, what is supposed to be going on? And how is it to be done in a manner that's pleasing to God? And all of this is uh, communicated in 1 Corinthians. Uh, a lot of times when we want to study how to do church, we usually go to Acts. And you'll find a lot of people introducing the book of Acts um, as a book that tells us how church should be done. Um, but I would contend rather that that might not be the case. Uh, Acts is a very unique book, giving us the history of a very unique time in church history that isn't necessarily to be replicated today. For example, if you go through the first third of the book of Acts, you'll find the church meeting daily in the temple and from house to house. Well, we can't go meet in the temple. That would make us have to all convert to Judaism. And besides that, on the Temple Mount, there is no temple. And so we can't live that out. We further follow... uh, find in the book of Acts the exercise of the uh, the revelatory gifts of the Spirit um, that Corinthians makes very clear. Paul anticipates that they're going to come to an end. There's going to be a time when that period, that, that time of apostolic uh, revelation is going to end. Not that we are missing out on something, but rather we have something more complete. And we're going to see that here in Corinthians. And so when we go through the book of Acts and we see the uh, activity there, we might uh, say, well, maybe we should be going down to the riverbanks and worshiping because that's what they did in Philippi after all. Um, maybe we should be implementing some of those. Do we anticipate the pastor um, having to uh, uh, performing healings in the midst of a service to affirm his message? Or do we have something more substantial? When we come to Corinthians, this is well along in the church age now, in terms of the first century church anyway, we were probably in the mid-50s. So the church is about a quarter of a century old. So they're about 25 years old or so. Um, and now we're starting to come with a theology of what worship is like now. How should it be done? What are the principles that are uh, to be practiced by the church, not just in that first uh bursting forth of the church age, but stretching out now future. Paul has now taken them into this uh, magnificent church planting period of reaching the gospel into the Roman Empire. And it's time now for him to establish these churches. And it's fascinating as you go not only through the book of Acts, but into the epistles, you'll find that one of the best means for us to gain these principles is by the problems the church had, not by the things they did right. And I want to share with, we get this idea that the early church did everything right. If that were the case, you would not have most of your New Testament. The fact is that most all of these books written for us are written because there are problems in the church. And they needed to be addressed. They needed to be corrected. And we get the idea along the way that somehow... How they did it in the book of Acts was the way it should have been done. And yet we find God correcting them. We find the apostles being corrected. Yeah, the apostles themselves needing to be corrected sometimes. We find the church needing to be matured and grown. And, and we find lots of issues coming up. Contentions that had to be resolved. And through the course of these, over the first century church, while the apostles were still alive, we find that as they addressed those issues, we gather together 
um, in all of their writings, not just Corinthians, and just like we don't depend just on Acts, um, we find in all of the writings a, a body of material that is instructive to us, not only of what the personal Christian life is about, and there's plenty of that in Corinthians. Don't get me wrong, when they get to talking about marriage and divorce and things like that, there's plenty here for the personal Christian life that we're going to address. But this is a letter to a church trying to get them to understand that there is a right and wrong way to do things in the church, that there is a godly way and an ungodly way, and that we need to shift ourselves from the way the world does things to the way God would do things if He were present, which He really is. Oh, that we would recognize that more when we gather together. And so we are going to look at how uh, Paul viewed the future of the church. Where is it supposed to be going? And what are the principles that's be following? And what is the theology underneath that? And so Paul had received word of this church in Corinth, Greece. And we're going to give you a little history of of the church in Corinth um, and really the city of Corinth before the church. But he had received word that there were problems. And the idea that somehow that now that shouldn't happen anymore, there aren't problems like this anymore, is foolishness. The fact is that every church is filled with a bunch of redeemed sinners um, who are all bringing their own baggage here, uh, including myself, and we all have our expectations and we all have our egos and we all have our issues. Well, the church in Corinth was no different. And the church in Galatia was no different. The church in Ephesus was no different. The church in Philippi was no different. The church in Athens was no different. And the church in Jerusalem was no different. They all had their issues. They all had their difficulties. And when we encounter those, it is necessary that we follow the biblical directives of how do we resolve these things. And we have opportunity in a study like this to find what does an apostle say? What has God commanded him to instruct the church of how things ought to be done? In the book of Acts, we have a record that Paul taught the people. But what we don't have is the content of that teaching in Acts. We don't have it recorded for us. We have some of his evangelistic sermons, but we don't have, what did he teach the people in Ephesus for three years? What did he teach the people in Corinth for 18 months at least, and maybe longer? What did he teach them week by week? Was he just an evangelist, or did he ground them in some truth? Well, he keeps referring to the truth that they were grounded in. So I believe Paul is doing more than just evangelism every Saturday or Sunday. And so we're going to look at what he has for the church and what he has expected from them out of what he has already taught them. And then, where does that go in the future? When that which is perfect has come and that which is incomplete and partial is is uh, over, what should church look like? And that's what we want to investigate as we look into 1 Corinthians. Now, many of you may not have a good background knowledge of the city of Corinth and of this area, and so let's just paint a little picture of what, what we're walking into. We're going to try to back ourselves up um, close to 2,000 years to walk into an environment um, that is very foreign to us. Uh, but yet, in many ways, is very much like how we live today. Uh, if there's any place in the Bible lands that 
maybe you would feel the most familiar, um, barring the fact that none of you know Greek, um, or Latin, which is really bad. I don't know why we don't know Greek and Latin. We, they used to teach that in schools. Didn't they, John? You know Greek and Latin because they taught it back there when the Waskowskis and the Roberts all went to school. They taught you Greek and Latin, right? Latin, yeah. Mrs. Fry, sure. They took Latin back then. Um, I don't know. It, it's a horrific thing that we don't know these fundamental roots of languages. But other than the fact that we don't know Greek and, and Latin, uh, we walk into Corinth, you would probably feel pretty comfortable. And that's not a good thing. Don't think, oh, well, that might be a place to visit. Not back then. That would not be a good thing. So let's look, paint the picture of Corinth. Corinth, of course, is in the uh, uh, peninsula, the, the isthmus of Greece, down the southern end. It's in the Mediterranean. Um, and it was a very important city um, because it provided a means of getting things from one sea to another sea without having to go through a perilous trip around the southern parts of the island chains of Greece. And so they were able to just transport just a couple of miles across, and many uh, emperors thought that it would be a good idea to have a waterway through there and tried to dig canals, and that happened for a long time. That canal was worked on and worked on and worked on. You can go and visit the Corinthian Canal today. It's still being used. Um, but... At this point, it was not available. And so what they would do is ships would come into that harbor. On one side of Corinth, they would unload their cargo. They'd cart it over to the other end and load it onto other ships. And it would save an incredible amount of uh, travel time, of time, an incredible amount of danger. Um, and it was a perfect opportunity for businessmen and, and those in the marketplaces to get their goods to where they wanted to go from the uh, western part of the Roman Empire to the eastern part and vice versa. Well, as you can imagine, this kind of a place gathered a lot of interesting characters. When it was Greek, before the Romans came in, it, it, it had some popularity. In fact, um, the Greeks called it the least Greek of all of our cities. It was the least Greek of all the Greek cities. The Romans came in and actually completely destroyed Corinth when they took over Athens, or took over Greece. It was the one city in all of Greece they completely destroyed when they came in. Shut it down and destroyed it. It was that important to Greece that they wanted to debilitate Greece as they were conquering it, and they completely destroyed it. They rebuilt it later on, recognizing the strategic importance to the Roman Empire. They rebuilt it, and it was called the least Roman of all the Roman cities. It was largely populated by Romans, but Greeks came back into the city, and you had people from all over the empires of the world that would take up residence in Corinth. Not only that, the Corinthians were very noted for one particular societal participation, entertainment, if you will, and that was the Corinthian games. Even when Corinth was destroyed and there was no city there, the games were held. The Corinthian games. And if you were an athlete of any note, you trained and competed at Corinth. 
That's where you went. That's where it was happening. And every athlete tried to make it to Corinth that, that for the Corinthian games in not only the Roman Empire, but well beyond. It was that well known. And so these games were held. And as you can imagine, all that goes on around our participation in sports happened then too. Nothing new under the sun. The only difference is they didn't have helmets and pads um, or referees usually. And didn't have uniforms either for that matter. So you had this business center where you have sailors coming in. You have people making a buck. And that's what Corinth was all about. You could make a fast dollar in Corinth. You had athletes there. And there was one other component to Corinth that kind of goes along with that. And historically, we've always kind of associated that. And I know i got a couple of Navy guys in here. Um, actually, more than a couple. Um, we often think of those uh, with the seaports and what sailors are like. And we often associate them with very unsavory, immoral kind of lifestyles as they go from port to port. Uh, and that was exactly what Corinth was like. It was not only the center of commerce, not only the center of athletics, but is also the center of immorality. Um, as you go to Corinth, even to this day, there is the Agora, which is the high place. It just overlooks the city of Corinth. Um, it would have been where the uh, 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 temple of Corinth was, at least one of them. There's, of course, the temple of Apollo in the main area there in Corinth. Um, but it just dominates the whole area, is this vista that overlooks the entire region looking out into the sea as well. And you just it's there today. You can drive up and visit it. Um, and up there would be the temple prostitutes. And, and uh, it was the common practice that if you're in Corinth, you're going to visit up there. And that was anticipated. And so it was a place of athletics, a place of immorality, and a place of great commerce. And this is the place that Paul shows up in his ministry with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, and I say, boy, does he have a prayer there? Oh, yes. In fact, he was discouraged at first, but God comes to him in the book of Acts and says, listen, uh, you remain here. I have a great number of people here. God says, I'm going to do a work here in the city of Corinth. And this is the place where you're going to plant yourself a little bit, Paul. Don't just call some of your guys in that you that aren't traveling with you right now. Bring them in. I have a work for you here in Corinth that you need to get after. And so Paul, rather than giving up and walking away from it, um, engages himself here. Um, and this is where he goes into business. Imagine that. He hooks up with a couple of uh, a couple of tent makers who are in the same line of business he was in before he came to Christ and became an apostle of Jesus Christ. Um, and that was making tents. And so he came across Aquila and Priscilla. Recognize those names, I hope, out of the book of Acts. Well, this is the place where he met them. And they go into business and they're making tents. And, and he's going to fund himself. He's going to support himself. He's going to settle down a little bit. And he's going to engage in ministry with these two believers who were kicked out of Rome and uh, uh, or possibly became believers under his ministry. But uh, we have these three now. And then Paul's going to bring in some of the others that are traveling with him, his uh, entourage, Timothy, some of the others, uh, and Titus likely as well. But we have him, Erastus for sure, 
And so we have him there um, starting a church, settled in, preparing for what God says God has. I have many people in this city that I want to reach. And so Paul goes about his tasks. And he is fairly successful. Church is established. Um, Paul is going to move on, of course. Um, and uh, probably Corinthians is written about three years after he leaves. Um, some would contend it was very quickly after he left, but I would say that this book was likely written three years. There's another book of Corinthians that we don't have in our Bible. It was a lost book. It precedes this one. It was his first writing to Corinthian, to the church in Corinth. Um, we're not sure exactly what was in it, of course, because it's lost. Um, so we don't have it. We don't have its content. Why do we know it exists? Because Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians. He says, I already wrote you one letter. Um, why is that not saved and this one saved? Well, um, because this letter is written by Holy Spirit inspiration. And apparently that one was not. And so it was not preserved. 1 Corinthians is a book written to a church in trouble. And Paul is very concerned. And we already read, saw some of that in our reading this morning. He's very concerned about that. He's not going to give up on them. This is not going to be the last book. Um, he's not going to be his last visit. He's not going to go back. He's not going to miss an opportunity to go back and, and personally arrive there and make straight some paths for the church. But Corinthians becomes a book that um, is going to be a model, really, for us in terms of addressing issues within the church, uh, as Paul would do. How would he do that? Sometimes very firmly, very harshly when necessary. And some of his words are extremely harsh. You will be offended if I got up and said this. You'd be offended by what he's said to them. And uh, But when dealing with sin in the church, it needs to be said. Uh, sometimes very gently and sometimes very instructively, just by simple teaching. He's saying, maybe you didn't get this, or maybe I wasn't clear on this. Maybe I didn't get to that while I was there. And so let me give you this teaching. Um, and so we have this wonderful presentation of how do we address these things going on in the church. But Paul is writing probably from Ephesus um, to the church in Corinth. It's going to be hand-delivered to them. And his plan is to get back there and revisit the place. But Paul isn't the last one to minister there. He's by a long shot. Another young man or older man, depending upon what your view is, Apollo shows up. Uh, following Paul's ministry there, Apollo kind of comes in as the second man on the job. He is an eloquent man, we know that, a powerful preacher who came to know Christ because of the ministry of Aquila and Priscilla. Two laymen got a hold of this guy. They heard this guy preaching a message. The message he was preaching was the message he heard personally from John the Baptist, which means this guy has been preaching probably for close to 20 years this message. Unless he was a convert to it, but the indication is he heard it from John the Baptist, which means that we have been traveling for a long time preaching Messiah's coming. He's been preaching that for a long time and Jesus has already come and gone. He didn't know it. He didn't get that word. And Quill Priscilla take him aside and say, hey, this Messiah that John the Baptist talked about, his name is Jesus. He came. This is what he did. He died on the cross. It's been a few years now. Um, Probably 15. Christ has probably been dead and raised again for 15 years. And this guy's still been out there preaching what John the Baptist said, which was, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. 
And Quill Priscilla, get him, he comes in, studies the scriptures, and he communicates Christ effectively um, and has a powerful ministry there in Corinth. And hence, we have his name right away in chapter 1 listed. There's also, of course, a very weak Jewish element there, but it is there, and it is evident that it is in the church. And we're going to be addressing that along the way as well. Not as strongly as in Galatian, Asia Minor, where we had the Judaizers there. Um, Corinthians is considered the opposite of that. Um, I don't know that I would count it that way, where uh, this is um, the Judaizers were trying to convert, were, were trying to say you can't be a Christian without following the Mosaic Law. Uh, and some would say Corinthians were the opposite, um, that uh, you, know, you don't keep any law if you're a Christian. Right? So we have Galatians and Corinthians are great uh, balance for us. Um, when we talk about the morality um, of the city of Corinth, um, you're going to be appalled at some of it, I hope. The problem is, is that it's going on around us today. And if you travel the world, I think one of the things you will find out is that the world knows that this is a place like that. In the Greek world and in the Roman world, if you were Corinthianized, if you were Corinthianized, it meant that you were about as debauched as you could be. And that was the term they used. You were Corinthianized. I can't even say it right. Corinthianized. It meant you were, it would be like for us, you, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Uh, we find, where, where is Sin City? Well, Sin City for the Roman Empire was Corinth. And how are Christians to conduct themselves there? And this we want to study. Let's go, Lord, in prayer. That's my intro. Let's get into our passage before, as we, after we pray. Lord, we do thank you for your love for us. And Lord, as we consider now your word, we pray for your help. We pray that we might be attentive to its truth and that we might be receptive to its message. That we might understand its authority over us. Lord, we thank you that it is before us, that we have it preserved for us here, and for this chance we have to study it. And Lord, as we embark upon this study, uh, we pray that its themes might be yours, and that its impact that it had on the church of Corinth to your glory as they purified themselves and and surrendered themselves to this instruction, that that same testimony might be evident here. Even though we may not necessarily have the same problems, but that as we deal with the issues of our culture, and as they creep into the church far too often, that we might be prepared to address them boldly and faithfully. We pray that this hour, this time in your word uh, might affect your change in us. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. We start off with a basic greeting, Paul. And this is a normal, everyday letter writing uh, means in this period. You start off with your own name, not dear so-and-so. You start off with who you are, but Paul expands it and, and baptizes it, if you will, into some... Uh, godly language is called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ with the will of God. 
why is this necessary? Because he is going to be speaking very directly and he has to establish his authority. It is one of the things that has been undermined in Corinth is his authority. Um, oh, you know, that's just Paul. And there's people saying, well, you know, he's, he's strong when he's in his letter writing, but you know, when he shows up, he's weak and, and, um, he, he, he has, there's some undermining of his authority there. So the first thing he wants to establish is, here's who I am. I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ and I didn't choose that. That was by the will of God. God chose me for this role. And so when you, uh, are dealing with an individual like Paul, you're dealing, you're, you're, and you want to contradict him. You're not contradicting the man. You're contradicting the God, but who made the man? The God who is putting the, the, the words into the man. That's who you're contradicting. And when we recognize that, we come to the book of 1 Corinthians, and this apostolic authority is important for us, still today, to recognize that if you have a problem with something in 1 Corinthians, your problem isn't with Paul. Your problem isn't with me. Your problem is with God. This is God's man and his message to the church in Corinth and to the churches of like faith. And that's going to come up very quickly here. And so we find that he identifies himself, but he wants to very quickly establish, listen, here's who I am. And it's not that I wanted to be this. I wanted to be an enemy of God. If you recall Paul's history, he wanted to be an enemy of the church. He went about and wanted to kill Christians. That's what his life ambition was, was to purge Israel of this scourge called Jesus. And Jesus himself gets in the way on the road to Damascus. And so he's called by Christ himself into that ministry. Um, he's blinded and then has to go to Damascus and get hands laid on him to get his sight back. Paul says, listen, um, wasn't what I was after. But this is what God's will was. And now it's, I have to fulfill the responsibilities of that authority. And this is very important that we understand the necessity for Paul to write a book like Corinthians. Why is he doing this? He's not the pastor there anymore. He's not present. He's only heard about what's going on there. I mean, isn't that making judgments based upon hearsay? Hmm. Yo, you see, we would have lots, lots of reasons to ignore Paul. And Paul says, listen, you ignore me, you're ignoring God. In a court of law, we say, well, that's based upon hearsay. You have no right and you're not even there. You don't even necessarily know what's going on. And, and, uh, how can you make this determination from, from across the sea? Well, he can do that because, and he has to do that because he is the apostle with that apostolic authority and the necessity to address these issues. He has the authority to do so. And if he doesn't do so, he will fall into the condition of prophets who have disobeyed God and um, bad things happen to them. If you read the Old Testament, uh, you disobey God, you're pretty much, as a prophet, dead. God has no time for that. If you're not my man, you're not going to speak my truth, I don't need you. And so Paul not only has the right to address these issues, he has the, re the requirement upon him to address these issues because he's the apostle of Jesus Christ and by God's own will. He has another one with him there, Sosthenes, our brother, and he's going to really emphasize this familial relationship and we're going to pick that up throughout the book of Corinthians. Listen, 
Um, this is your new family. And whatever family you came out of, whether it was out of the immoral side of, of Corinth, out of the athletic side of Corinth, and we're going to have athletic features in, Corinth, uh, in Corinthians as well, whether it's out of this um, commerce side, uh, whatever it is that used to define you, right now we are a family, and he's going to pick up this theme very quickly of Sosthenes, our brother. And he's going to write this, of course, to a church. The word church there is simply the word assembly. It is not a religious word at all. Uh, in fact, if you go to uh, Acts, I think it's 18, where it talks about the assembly of the uh, people of Ephesus, the silversmiths got them all riled up and they assembled um, and started screaming out, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Um, that word assembly is ekklesia, the Greek word that we use or translate as church. And it's used three times in that chapter, and it's obviously not a church. So if you go into town and there's a town meeting um, in Greece, they will call that an ecclesia. Even to this day, it will be called an ecclesia, which means an assembly. It's kind of interesting. In the Greek language, there are words that could have been used for a gathering, a religious gathering. Paul uses none of them. He never uses the term that would be associated with a religious gathering. They had those words, that there's a gathering at the Temple of Apollo, so let's go over there. They had words for that in Greek. Paul chose not to use that. Because of the uniqueness of Christianity, he wanted to draw them out and say, listen, you are a unique assembly. You're, you're not connected into these other religions at all. You're called out to be separate from them. That's going to be a major theme throughout Corinth the book of Corinthians. You are called out to be separate. And the first thing I want you to understand is that you are separate from all these other religions that you are encompassed with there in Corinth. And they are dominant. You cannot walk into Corinth without... Even today, the first thing you notice, you walk into Corinth and it's going to be the Temple of Apollo. There it is. I mean, the pillars are still there. Go and look. They're mammoth. And they sit on the high part in the city. You are not part of those religious groups anymore. You are a church. You are an assembly. And he uses this, this secular word. I know for you and I, we look at that word and say, well, that's not a secular word. That's church. That's as religious as you get. Um, only now, 2,000 years, because we have made it that. But at the time of this writing, Paul's saying, listen, you are an assembly. And he uses a secular word, not a religious word. He says, you are an assembly of God. You are assembling together um, here in Corinth, and but instead of assembling for civil reasons, you are assembling as the people of God and the family of God. And essentially, he calls them that when you gather together once a week, the first, well, this is, by the way, the book that we find out what day of the week they gathered. They gathered the first of the week, not the seventh. So they gathered on Sunday, not Saturday. We know that from Corinthians. And so he says, when you gather together, um, it's not about doing the things all these other religions do. You're gathering together as a family of God. You're having a family meeting. Now, Pastor Leishman announced that we're having our business meeting January 22nd um, on the Sunday night service. And, and uh, it's a family meeting. We don't really function very well as a business here, I've, I've found. I'm not good at it. Um, 
But it's that meeting of the family, that assembling of family. You are God's assembly. And it would be a word used for town meetings. It would be a word used for marshalling uh, the police or the, or the military, that you would assemble them. You would ecclesia them. You would church them. You'd get them together. And, that's, and so that's the places that it would be used. It was not a word that would be used typically for religious gathering. But Paul says, listen, you're a gathering that is different from all the other religions. You're God's army. You're God's family. You're God's building. You are God's assembly. And we have taken this word, church, ecclesia, assembly, and we have uh, unfortunately lost that disconnect from all other religions. That's what it calls us to. Assemble together away from everything called religion and be assembled for God. That is what we are to be doing here every Sunday and, and every time we gather, whether it's on a Wednesday or whenever it is, or Tuesday, we are calling ourselves out, assembling together for God. And so we come on to verse 2 and it says, To those who are sanctified in Christ, called to be saints, with all who in every place call the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. And we're still in the greeting, and we got all this powerful theology, and I'm not going to get past this verse this morning. Because this is the theme of Corinthians. Both first and second. We find it the, the theme. You are called to be saints. You are set aside. Sanctified and, and saints and holy are all derived from the same root words. And so when we find him calling them, he says, listen, you are set apart. You are different. You are unique. You are no longer like all the other religions. You're no longer like your society. You're no longer like the family. You're, you're different. You're sanctified. You're set apart for this special service to God. And God has set you apart to this. You are, sanct- you are set apart in Christ Jesus, called saints, holy ones. That is, and we think of holy ones, well, that's just a goody two-shoes, someone's going around doing good all the time. But in the Greek mind, that's not what this word meant. It meant you are distinct. You are set apart. There is a space now between you and what you used to be, what you used to be engaged in, what you used to be associated with, that you are now disconnected from that and connected to something new. And now you are set apart to God in Christ Jesus. And this is to be the characteristic of the church, is that this calling out of an assembly that we get out of the world, we gather together and we have to do some weird things here. Oh, we do weird things. We publicly sing. Tell me, where else, besides in this room, do you gather with people and sing? Now, maybe someone's in a choir or something, a community choir or something, but tell me, how often does it happen? Baseball game. Yeah, we sing the national anthem. That's about it. Very rare. We gather together. We, as far as I could tell, you guys wouldn't stop singing if, if, if uh, Chris didn't tell you to sit down and close your hymn books. We are called out to be different. 
And this is the whole theme of the Christian life and the theme of a church life. And when we find the church not being sanctified, what are they doing? They're going to go out there and they're going to fish in the world for stuff to bring into the church. And Paul, right off the bat, says, it's not what you're called to be. You're called to be separate. Now, does that mean we're, we're going to go um, hide on some property um, down in C- Central America? No, not that separate. It's not that you're not supposed to be in the world. You're not supposed to be of it. Don't be like the world in any way, in any capacity. You're, you're to be unique. And I use this word assembly. I'm using this to God. And I want you to understand you are set apart. You are sanctified. You are made holy. You are called to be saints. And, it's, and, and if you think this is unique to you, by the way, and he's, this is a little under undercurrent that he's got going on, that he's going to address. Listen, you're not unique to all the people of God. You're just unique from the world. And all churches are to be unique from the world. That is, there is a culture that should be called Christianity. It should be a global culture called this is Christian. That you could go anywhere in any time yeah, any time, and say, that's Christian. And when I go to Haiti or to India or to Peru or, or Cuba and I go walk in and I anticipate certain things, not because we exported American uh, methodology there, but I anticipate certain things. I anticipate the Word of God being central to all that's going on there, even if the instruments and the order of service and all of that is different. The Word of God should be central there. Prayer should be a, a, a necessary necessary element. Um, I expect to see a fellowship of the saints. I expect to see these because this is the Christian culture. I anticipate the love of God being expressed one to another. I anticipate the care of the, of the widows and orphans. I anticipate all of these kinds of things. And Corinthians, the book of Corinthians, first and second, tell us exactly what we should anticipate no matter where we go in all the world or in all time from the beginning of the church till its conclusion at Christ's coming. This is church culture. And it should be different. We sometimes have muddied this because we are convinced that our country is a Christian country and therefore everything that's American is equal to godly. But I would contend we are far from that and have been for well over a hundred years. We are very far from that. When I read some of my predecessors' writings Back in the 1920s, you know what they were concerned about? How pagan American culture was in the 1920s. And was there any hope for America when we are... And I look back and I go, boy, I wish I could live in the 1920s. Prohibition. Maybe I wouldn't get woke up at 4 a.m. New Year's morning with someone crashing, not into our house, thank the Lord, but nearby, very nearby. We are called to be countercultural. And the culture that we are called to is different 
It is set apart. It is unique. It is, it is called to be holy. It involves certainly righteousness and, and all that we and associate with that word. But fundamentally, it simply means to be separate. That we are not to be like, sound like, um, act like, think like, uh, and certainly uh, not desire after the things of the world. We are to be different. And the problem fundamentally in Corinth was that they just wholesale brought the world into the church. They just carried all that baggage right in. And this is what happens out there. It's what happens in here. And it's exactly what we have seen in the modern church growth movement. We go to the world, we find out what they're listening to, how they're dressing, what they expect, what kind of entertainment they're engaging in, and we bring that in the church, and that's how we get them here to hear the message. And they won't come to church, they won't hear the gospel from someone um, out there in the world, so we got to bring it to them with a DVD. Or a podcast, well, a podcast, or whatever. We, 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 that's the only way we're going to reach them, is we got to entertain them into Christ. Really? Sounds like you're Corinthians. Before the book, not after. All they did was say, whatever goes on out there, we're glad to have it in here and uh, we can just uh, be Christians and we can tolerate it. In fact, they were even glorying in some of it. Paul says, no. You're called to be different. You're called to be set apart, sanctified. To be saints, holy ones. Not just you, but all who in every place call in the name of the Lord of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. Every place. By the way, you're every place. You're here. We are called, just like the Corinthian believers, just like the believers in Jerusalem, just like the believers throughout the entire church age, this calling is the same for all of us, that we be something different. Something that is godly. And you might scratch your head and say, well, I don't know what that is, Pastor. And, and I've, been, I've been raised in this country all my life and I've been exposed to that and it's just common and, and it feels comfortable to me and that's the whole problem. And it was the problem in Corinth and it's the same problem here. We have a hard time even being able to decide what should be in our church and what should not be in our church. Mostly because we've lost track of the principle of sanctification. Of becoming conformed to Christ. Transformed there when we've been growing up all our life conformed to the world. And if you don't think conformity to the world isn't exactly what's going on in our schools today, you haven't visited there recently. What, your dad doesn't let you have a cell phone? Oh, you poor kid. And no, my kid's dad doesn't give him a cell phone. I'm cheap. No. I have other reasons. You ever go to a middle school? How many of you went to middle school? I didn't. I went to junior high. Okay, that's what it was called when I was... How many went to junior high school? All right, there we go. And how many of you went to middle school? Poor people. Um, I tell you what, there is no place, no place on the earth where we 
demand conformity to a world's culture than middle school, USA. We um, have our children's program on Tuesday nights here. We see kids come up to the program excited, accept Christ as their Savior, and then they hit sixth grade. And a horrible thing happens to them. They go to middle school. And the intense pressure they're under to conform. To conform to what? To conform to what eighth graders think, which, by the way, they learned to conform to when they were sixth graders to other eighth graders. And we have a vicious cycle of conformity to what? The standard of eighth graders? Do you know that 8th graders are not really human? They are 13-year-olds. They are the most villainous, vile, evil age of man. Of mankind. Think about it. And they're the ones that are demanding conformity out of 6th graders. Be like us, or you're not cool. We're going to beat you up. And nowadays, that's what happens. You see, we've been trained to conform to the world. And then we come to church and we're told, wait a minute, I'm supposed to be different? Do you know what that's going to cost me tomorrow at school? Yeah, I do. Yeah, I do. I've been chased. I've been beat. I do know what it costs to say, not me. I'm not going to participate. I'm, I don't care what names you call me. I don't care what danger it puts me in. I refuse to conform. And it's, and it's kind of funny because the, 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 here's, here's the mentality of the eighth graders, okay? We're the nonconformists. And we got red hair and spiky things and we pierce things and tattoo this stuff. And we're trying to look like thugs, um, which is kind of funny because they all do, which means they're all conformed. The nonconformists are the most conforming people around. You want to be radical? You want to be radical at school? Be a Christian. It's the most non-conforming belief system available to man. We're as radical as it gets right here. We actually believe to get rich, you got to give your stuff away. Try it someday. Oh, see how conform you are to the world? You're sure that's stupid. That's what the Bible says. If you want to be great, be the least of all. Serve the least. That's how you become great. Oh, it doesn't sound right, Pastor. You want peace? Walk in righteousness. No, Pastor, that doesn't give me peace at school. Conforming makes it peaceful. No, it doesn't. That's the lie. Because we have spent all of our lives looking to be conformed to the world, we come to church and we go, and we come to the Christian life, and we, and and like the people of Corinth, we're kind of like, I don't get it. What's what's supposed to? Well, what, how different am I supposed to be? How far does this thing really stretch and reach? And Paul calls us right down to our very identity. Who are you? Who are you? How do you describe yourself? 
Maybe you know your birth lineage and you describe yourself by that. You know, I'm, I'm just a crazy Dutch, Irish, German. Is that who I am? No. Not, I'm not even American. Oh, that has something to do with my physical presence here when I was born. But fundamentally, that's not how I should be defining myself to people. I, when I go overseas and I speak, I don't come there and say, hello, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, your, I'm an American here to visit you. No, I'm your brother in Christ. You have the same Bible I have, a little bit different language. And I can teach out of it just as if I was at home this Sunday. We're called to be different. And we you know, historically have been identified as little Christ running around. And that Christian term was derogatory, was a name called. Um, put it in our modern vo- vernacular, um, you're a Bible thumper is what they call them. When I was a kid, um, you're, uh, I don't know what they're using today because I'm not in middle school anymore. Whew, never was. But um, whatever derogatory term they give, wear it like a badge. Because it means you're not conforming. If they don't see a difference in you, if they don't, if the world doesn't come in here and feel uncomfortable, if they don't feel, if they feel comfortable coming in here, we're doing things wrong because we're doing things like they would. And so, when you invite people to church, tell them you're going to come. You're going to feel real uncomfortable, but that's okay because we're different. Wouldn't you like to be different too? I had a very different night than a lot of people last night. And I'm having a very different morning than a lot of people this morning. I woke up refreshed, kind of. Ready to go at it in my right mind. I wasn't ill. Here I am. Praise God. We can be sanctified. We are the saints. We are called to be holy. Don't be afraid of the radical difference that Christ can make in you. Be willing to step up and be a nonconformist. Put these principles to work in your life. Put them into work in our church. And God will bring His blessing, which we're going to see in the very next verse. We're not going to get to it this morning because my time is way past.